That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. And speaking of greatness, which NBA superstar will get their first championship ring? The Suns' Chris Paul or the Bucks' Giannis Antetokounmpo? Find out by listening to every NBA Finals game on ESPN Radio with pregame starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and watch starting at 9 p.m. on ABC TV. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Angela Gerald. My dilemma is I don't have time to work out and I'm trying to figure out how to fit it all in. Okay, well, this is about the most relatable dilemma there is for so many of us, even if you don't have kids. It just, it always feels like the first thing to go when we're busy is exercising, even though we know it's necessary and that we're sharper and better for everyone around us when we take care of ourselves. I've mentioned this before, but um, I do have a real solution that works for me. So each month I take a board made up of squares like bingo, 25 or so boxes. And in each box, I put a workout like hot Pilates or yoga or a collection of workouts like Peloton three times per week. I also add in other stuff like trying new healthy recipes, long walks with the dog, time spent reading my favorite book, all things I want to do, but probably won't if they're not scheduled because they'll get pushed away by work and other things. So then you post the board to your Instagram story or other social media, maybe on the fridge in a hard copy too, and then cross off the items when you do them. It keeps you honest, it makes you feel accomplished when you cross them off, and it gives you a really big picture look at what you want to do in 30 days so you get moving and don't put things off because you see how many boxes you need to get to. Um, you can also add a twist and have friends that all have the same bingo board and you keep each other honest and compete with each other for who can get the most. Uh, if you're competitive like that, that's a great way to keep you honest too. So give it a shot. That's what she said. So as you guys probably know by now, there's a lot of me sort of like falling in love with my podcast guests that goes around around here. I like picking people's brains and getting curious about them. And I love connecting on shared interests and mindsets. And it happens so often and it has happened again with this week's just total, if I do say so myself, mutual admiration society. I feel like it was real on both sides. Um, I just loved talking to a legend who after... You know, doing just about everything she could on the ice, then has gone on to share my drive to amplify and support women's sports in a really meaningful way. Angela Ruggiero, former ice hockey defenseman, gold medalist, four-time Olympian. Uh, she was on the U.S. women's national hockey team and medaled in four straight Winter Olympic Games, was named to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2015, all-time leader in games played for Team USA, male or female, 256. Also was a member of the IOC from 2010 to 2018 and was a member of the executive board of the IOC after being elected chairperson of the IOC Athlete Commission. This is the body that represents sort of all Olympic athletes worldwide. She held that post for two years, 2016 to 2018. She now has founded uh, and is the CEO of the Sports Innovation Lab which just released The Fan Project. It's a groundbreaking research report on women's sports and the massive growth potential presented and not yet taken advantage of. So we talk about her incredible record-breaking hockey career, being on The Apprentice and getting a job offer from the Trumps and how all of that feels different now, uh, starting the Sports Innovation Lab, using hard data to tell the story many of us have known for a while, which is... There's a shit ton of money in women's sports. You guys are going to love this. She's awesome. That's what she said. So I knew I wanted to talk about this new study called The Fan Project. And whoever was in charge of it and running it and speaking on its behalf was going to come on. And then I find out it is none other than a legend. So there's so much to talk to with Angela besides The Fan Project. So we're going to try to squeeze in first getting to all of her incredible accomplishments and then a rundown of this brand new study and how it hopefully will take advantage of a massive pivot point in the sports world for female athletes and, and women's sports. Um, Angela, thank you for coming on. I, your bio was like pages and pages long of scrolling through awards and accomplishments. So that introduction I just gave didn't even uh, touch the surface, but I tried to get most of it in. Let's go back to um, growing up. Was it just from day one, all about hockey and sports for you? Yeah, I loved hockey. It was uh, my 
first love, if you will, I was, I was a hockey player in, on career day in the second grade and people thought it was crazy. Cause this is a, a girl in California in like the eighties. And you know, there wasn't even the Olympics yet at this point. So people are like, what? And I'm like, I just love it. It's so fun. I, I wanted to play for the LA Kings. My brother played, uh, my sister played for a couple of years. Um, so it was a fun family sport. I mean, a lot of driving, but um, yeah, at, at an early age, I knew I loved being on the ice and just that, that feel of, you know, that you get when you play hockey, you just, you can't describe it. It's just this beautiful safe space for me. It was, it was my happy place. (laughs) So who's responsible for this? Because as you mentioned, a a family in California, of course, they're the LA Kings and hockey is, is worldwide, but um, for you to grow up and choose that instead of surfing or beach volleyball or something, who's responsible for that? Yeah, and this is pre Gretzky. They, I, we, my father signed uh, my brother up. He wanted my brother to follow in his footsteps. Uh, who was my brother was six at the time, and my brother came home in his goalie gear, and I thought he looked awesome. And coincidentally, they said we're desperate for bodies on the ice. Like this is California. There's no. They didn't have enough kids to field the team, so he said <laughs> we'll give you. Do you have any other kids? And my and you know the at the rink, and my dad's like, oh, I got a couple girls at home didn't think that, you know, girls <laughs> played hockey really. And they said, we'll give you a family discount. We'll give you three for the price of two. And, <laughs> and so my, my dad asked my mom and she's like, yeah, you know, they all agreed. And so he signed us, we were six, seven and eight. I was in the middle and yeah. So my dad basically um, founded the sport for, for my, you know, my siblings and myself and um, you know, had there been enough kids for that team, maybe I never would have signed up. Uh, so I, I'm actually very grateful that I grew up in a non-hockey. Yeah. Um, so I found it. it. It it found me in some ways. But you weren't going to be in California for long because maybe not the best place to thrive because of that um, interest not being being great enough. So you end up in Choate out on the East Coast, maybe a better spot to develop. Um, for those who don't know, a boarding school out in Connecticut. Um, was that a tough decision? I mean, that's, that's a, a, at that age, at a high school age to be away from your family. Was that tough? It was, but I think knowing the opportunity that I had coming from a very like blue collar family, my parents hadn't graduated from, you know, university and they, I, and suddenly their daughter got to go to this amazing prep school, get a phenomenal education and continue to play hockey. And by the way, um, the boys were, were catching up. I'd thrown a few checks as a youngster. I'm sure they wanted to, as they hit puberty, get me back. And I'm like, see ya. Uh, so I, I, you know, switched over to girls hockey and my eyes were open to the opportunity on the women's side. So for a number of reasons, it was probably the perfect fit for me. A wonderful school. Cho, I always owe so much to that, 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 that school and the, the, you know, just the opportunity that I had to not only do sports, but also academics. And you were actually in your first Olympics while still in high school, right? Yeah, our our um, headmasters they say gave us gave the whole school the day off. It was my senior year at show, um, so I left the fall and the winter. Went to Nagano, Japan, where it was the first time ever women's hockey was in the Olympics, and I was the youngest player on that team. You know, taking my SATs on the road and applying to schools and. Um, winning a gold medal, by the way. No <laughs> so, biggie. Yeah. And I had, you know, I, I remember writing my essay and everyone's like, this isn't even fair. Like you just, I'm like, I'm going to write about winning a gold medal. And um, yeah, I was pretty lucky. It was, it was a pretty good senior, senior year. <laughs> write about a big moment from senior year. It was like, well, I went to the, you know, Sigma Nu formal and I won a gold medal. <laughs> um, so you end up at Harvard. Uh, how'd you make that choice? And was there somewhere else in the running? And, and was it tough to make that choice? Yeah, there were a few schools in the early days giving out scholarships. So it definitely was interest. I was interested in a few, um, you know, schools that had scholarships. But Harvard just ended up being this this magical place that I when I got to campus. I and I thought everyone's going to be a big nerd, and I had no. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to go for the trip and. But I got on campus. It was funny. I, I I connected with the players and the coach and just the history and and the opportunity. I think at the end of the day, and I'm I'm like, I the team was okay. We weren't you know we were fifty fifty that year, five hundred. We weren't anything special, but it just it for a number of reasons it felt like home and like I'd be pushed there. Um, it wasn't um, you know I looked at some other Ivy League schools as well, but Harvard just I think. Um, 
was a good fit for me. And so, so glad I, I ended up going there again. Um, got to have academics and athletics, which is again, rare, I think in today's student athlete. I just double checked your age because I assumed you were a fair amount older than me because of your, again, that bio that spans a three lifetimes worth of achievements. But you're actually not that much older than me. And, and you probably played against some of my one of my best friends at Cornell was a hockey player. Um, so you guys probably uh, had some duels back in the day when you were when you were at Harvard. Well, give me I, her name and I'll tell you if I, you know, threw an elbow or I was. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did based on uh, based on your uh, your history. And since you you already mentioned that you were all about the checks. Uh, Aaron Perushek was her name. Oh, well, tell her I'm sorry if I ever, you know, never <laughs> I ran haven't talked to her in her. ages. I should go look her up. <laughs> it's funny. I get players today to this day that are like, oh, yeah, we played against each other. You probably don't remember me, but you ran me over. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. Yeah, that <laughs> is um, that is the entire history of me uh, in field hockey, actually. is uh, awesome. I played against you. I don't remember. Oh, well, I remember you because yeah. you basically you know, beat the crap awesome. out of people. From Harvard, you're, you're getting out of college. You obviously now know that the Olympics and world championship kind of competitions are going to be there for you playing for the USA. Mm -hmm. But what was your thought about the rest of the landscape and how you might continue playing hockey? Yeah, it's it, it not. I mean, today you have conversations and pro leagues and a lot, uh, um, or at least in women's hockey, we're trying to still figure it out. But at least the idea that there should be a pro league, there should be something after you graduate is increasingly an expectation for, I think, a lot of female athletes. Um, when I graduated in 2004, the I went to um, Montreal for one season. Um, it was a couple years before the 2006 Olympics and played for the Montreal Action, which at the time was, you know, quote, pro, but, it you know, you paid your way, you paid, you know, you weren't getting paid anything. I don't know why it's called pro, to be honest. Um, but <laughs> it was good hockey. It was, you know, a lot of post-grad players playing they at that time had limited only two non-Canadians. So they were, you know, it was basically Canadian um, Olympic players. And, but you, you know, you did what you, you, you did what you had to do um, to stay at that elite level. I had, you know, I had a gold and a silver at this point, I wanted another gold medal. And if it took moving to Canada and kind of living off your savings, you, you figure it out. So for me, um, there wasn't an expectation of a pro league. I, I've, I've been talking about one. I mean, this is 15 years ago. I hope we get one soon, but, um, you know, the NWHL, we've got the PW on the hockey side, you, you know, there's a lot of inertia and traction and we've had the CWHL, we've had a lot of, um, different groups and, you know, I think the time is right for us to kind of move in one direction, but at that time there just wasn't a real clear path, but being on the Olympic team, again, you see this with a lot of national team players, you just, you make it work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm hoping, you know, something similar happened on the soccer side where the NWSL now is almost a decade old and it is the preeminent league. There aren't, mm -hmm. isn't any competition for professional women's soccer in the States. And I would love for hockey to be able to find that one league that gets its legs under it for, for a longer time. And, and that competition always seemed in some ways like plenty of people had opportunities, but um, too disparate in terms of where the talent is when you, when you dilute it like that. It needs to be sort of centralized into one, one league. Yeah, if we figure that out, I mean, I think sky's the limit for. I just yeah. I'm too bullish Such on hockey. Such a great sport to watch. But we yeah, need to, you know, row in the same direction, so to speak. At some point, we'll see. <laughs> you found your way uh, into professional hockey somewhere or another, uh, sort of like your youth by just playing with the boys. First woman to actively play in a regular season pro hockey game in North America at a position other than goalie. Your brother was actually the goaltender. So you were the first brother sister combo to play professionally at the same time, which is a very cool stat to have. Um, and I think you had an assistant in one of the games, right? Yeah. Yeah. Playing D I got a, I think I got the second assist, but you know, you get, you get an assist in hockey. So I got a point, I got a card, I got a trading card. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. So um, you play a little bit with the CWHL, as you mentioned, the Boston blades, you retire in 2011. And was that a, it's time I don't want to play anymore or my body's tired or was it, I'm looking around and I just don't have the opportunity to do this the way I want. I think it was more of the latter. Like I, I think I definitely could have played in one more Olympics. Um, my, I look, if I was a Tom Brady and had 
uh, was making a boatload of money and could make it my true career um, and be set, I probably would have played longer. But I, I think I was also a little bored. You don't have the frequency of games mm-hmm. that a professional athlete has. Um, so you're training as a, as a you know, you, once you graduate, you play in the world championships. There's a few other high-level tournaments. You get the Olympics every four years. Um, but I didn't get that like adrenaline rush on a daily basis. I had to wait, you know, periodically. And, um, you know, I went back, I ended up going back to Harvard business school cause I went into the classroom and my mind was like, you know, pushed in some ways. And so I had some other, I had other interests and, and, you know, it was just the time in my life. I'm like, all right, I got to start my second career. So a little bit of it was, um, I love hockey to death. I could keep playing, but you know, there wasn't that full-time place for me that where I, again, if I was playing in front of 20,000 people making right. good money, I probably would have played longer for, for, for sure. Um, but I just recognize like, okay, if I go back to, to business school now and, and really jumpstart my second career, it's probably a better life term lifetime decision for me. Um, yeah. so I still love hockey. I mean, I, I will, I stepped away before, you know, hopefully before everyone could say, oh man, she's not any good anymore. She's got everything. <laughs> so I went out in a high note. We won our last world championships in 2011. And I was like, all right, I'm people will remember me for, you know, where I was not, you know, where I, um, you know, those, I don't know. I, in some ways I feel like I stepped away too early, but in a lot of ways it was the absolute perfect timing for me and in kind of the circumstances I was in. And it turns out being, you know, a good, a great, again, great opportunity for what I'm doing now to push more investment in, in women's sports and just kind of be on the business side of sports in general. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it works out in terms of finding all the other things you're passionate about, but it is pretty heartbreaking. The idea that um, very few women in sport will make enough money to be able to say, not only this is my career now, but I don't have to come up with a full second career almost immediately because I don't have the millions of dollars to sit on. It's something Abby Wambach talked about after yeah. going on the SB stage alongside Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant and realizing, yeah. wow, we all retired at the same time and they're off to be doing whatever they want with generational totally. wealth and the wealth for their kids. And now I have to figure out what else I'm good at and what I can do. And so yeah. um, that's always hard to have to make that decision in part because, and to your point, you get tired of beating up your own teammates in practice every day. You need some new faces to compete yeah, against. I, you know, <laughs> even, even playing against Canada, like to me, that's the best, you have the two best teams in the world. You consistently going head to head. It's like the Red Sox and the Yankees. You can't trade anyone. And <laughs> right. it's like, awesome because you've developed these rivalries with these other players but man i would have loved you know a variety of players a variety of teams a variety of um you know i love that when i got pushed to my physical peak my physical edge um so yeah a little bit of like on the on the ice and you know a little bit of off the ice the the what your point you're, you're talking about i didn't make that the kind of money i mean i'm in the hall of fame and i look around at all the guys that play in the hall of fame and you know it's like you could, they're, they're set, you know, a lot of these mm-hmm. older guys or younger guys are set. And, um, in some ways I feel there's so many athletes though, that they're set and then they're bored and they're like, what do I right. do? I have no, idea. I have, I'm all, you know, and pretty and, one note, they haven't ever really needed to, or been p- pushed to become more well-rounded and more interested in things outside of the game. Yeah. You, yeah, exactly. You're not pushed. Cause you, you can retire on a boat and, and I, in some ways, again, it's, maybe I'm always like glass is half full. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I didn't, you know, had a great hockey career and I, you know, got a good education and all the above. I'm like, okay, like let's tackle whatever's next in life with the same energy that I did as a, as a hockey player. And you start from scratch, you fall a lot, you, you know, you can apply all these lessons that I always talk to like kids about and companies about, and I'm like, I'm applying it to myself now. I'm (laughs) relearning something. Um, so yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to be lazy and just retire. Um, right. Right. Well, I do, I am, I'm not gonna lie. I am a little envious of like the, you know, the Peyton Manning, Tom Brady world that do to play forever. The Zidane Chars. I'm like, I've done that, but anyway. And, and those days when you're tired of working and you're like, I could do the boat thing for a while. Um, (laughs) so you were on the apprentice at one point and you made it pretty far 10 episodes or so. Um, this was before a couple years before you retired. Um, is it weird to look back on that now, knowing Mm -hmm. all the things that have happened since then? 
And I get this question. I'm like, oh, how do I answer that? <laughs> Very weird. Uh, no, I, I, I got a job offer from the Trumps. They wanted me to, you know, basically move to New York and work for them and be running a hotel and a golf course and all this other stuff that we were talking about. And, and I honestly entertain it. Cause I'm like, I was three Olympics and, um, oh, everyone was like, you should do it. You'll make a lot of money. And my gut was like, no, I'm, I'm a hockey player and this doesn't feel right to me. And, you know, obviously made the right decision. I, in, right. In, and now you're not in jail for embezzlement or no, whatever. And I'm, no, honestly, I'm like, <laughs> what? Everyone was telling me like, oh, you gotta, you know, follow the money. And I'm like, but that's doesn't feel right. It's right. just not me. And oh, yeah, what so. a different life you might've had. I'm, I think <laughs> about that seriously. Uh, Cause I had it all laid out. Like um, I actually went to high school with Ivanka and like I knew, and now I'm like, Nope. I yeah, obviously did the right thing. I did the right I'm, thing. Um, you also good. worked at a hedge fund for a while. Um, did you enjoy that work? I mean, it's certainly a competitive industry where you may be able to apply some of the ambition and the, and all that, but was the work um, interesting for you? I don't think it was interesting enough, um, but you know, me beating a market, so to speak, but the idea that you're going to be in a highly intense, competitive corporate environment really was appealing to me again as this elite athlete that loved I love to get pushed I love to kind of um learn and and that so the I guess the culture and the competitiveness was attractive to me to be in that high pace kind of environment where you had to you know you got to show up every day um but the content itself uh wasn't as interesting to me as again going back into the sports space we'll get right back to the interview but first What's your favorite word? Uh, so I just learned a word, which I love. We used to have word of the week at Harvard. I'm a nerd. I love this one. Inimitable. I learned Ooh. it from Hamilton. It's about being distinctive and individual, unique, you know, uneasily imitated, if you will. Inimitable is a great word and I never use it. And I need to start. Inimitable. So good or unusual as to be impossible to copy unique. And yes, it's from probably my favorite song from Hamilton, Wait For It. I am the one thing in life I can control. I am an inimitable. I am an original. I love that. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is, well, I wanted the word of the week to be unanimous, uh, but I don't think it's a real word. Um, regular listener Hafid Cristobal sent it to me uh, and he saw it listed somewhere as meaning united in stupidity from the Latin for one ass. God, I wish that was a word. And God, I wish that was true. But I can't find it on any of the etymology sites. So for now, unless someone can prove otherwise, Unasinus is out. But I'm going to keep in line with that thinking, with a word that's very much a word, but not found in English and almost can't be translated. Saudade, or in my very bad Portuguese, I believe it's saudade. Um, it's a Portuguese and Galician term. It's it's really common in the books and music of Portugal and Brazil and Cape Verde uh, and beyond. And very simply, it's a deep emotional state of melancholic longing for a person or thing that is absent. It's often associated sort of with the time period when Portuguese sailors went on voyages to the other side of the world and, and they left their wives behind and there was a saudade for each other. But it's actually more complicated than that. In his book, Portugal in 1912, uh, the scholar Aubrey Bell wrote, quote, the famous saudade of the Portuguese is a vague and constant desire for something that does not and probably cannot exist for something other than the present, a turning toward the past or towards the future, not an active discontent or poignant sadness, but an indolent dreaming wistfulness. And it, it differs from nostalgia in that you can feel saudade for something that might not have even ever happened. Uh, Portuguese writer Manuel de Mello says, quote, a pleasure you suffer, an ailment you enjoy. It's beautiful and almost untranslatable. Here it is in a sentence. Saudade sweeps over me when a friend halfway across the world sends me an email and I can hear her voice in the written words. Now let's get back to the interview. So you come up with the idea of the Sports Innovation Lab. You are the CEO and co-founder. It's a market research firm 
powered by technology and uh, working with sports brands to figure out the products and services and trends that will um, influence their business in the future. Was the original intent to focus on women's sports or is the fan project just a, a spinoff of the larger focus of, of the sports uh, innovation lab? Yeah, it's, it's, it's more of a spinoff. Um, you know, we like to think we're, you know, we're market research on the fan experience. So we help brands across sports, teams, leagues, technologies, anyone that's investing um, in the sports ecosystem, understand the fan, understand the fan experience and, you know, make the right build by partner decisions, build the right strategy and use data to do that. Again, I'm very like data driven. Um, so the fan project was, was like, hey, we're helping the whole industry understand this future consumer, this fan, how to, you know, how to really build the right experience around it using technology and using data to do that. And again, I'm in some ways furthering that wealth gap, helping mostly the men's sports organizations. And we're very proud of the work that we've done across the the global network with the, you know, the NFLs and the NHLs and the FIFAs and, you know, the UFCs of the world and all the amazing technology companies and brands. But, but at the, in my heart, I'm going, I want to do more for women because obviously I was a female athlete and I don't think we get the attention we deserve. I think most people don't understand because the sports industry is run by men. Largely, we don't get the women's market. Or as I say, you know, if you're going to invest in women's sports, typically it's let's lift and shift the model we've always done on the men's side. And no, it's a different consumer. It's a different product in some ways. So um, the fan project is more of at Sports Innovation Lab. We care about diversity and inclusion, and we want to use our insights to democratize access and change strategy so that everyone gets included in kind of the benefits of sports. And, and so this initiative is really, how do we change the, the game? How do we move the needle on investment? Um, and, and, and I thought rather than Angela's opinion, cause I'm sure, you, um, <laughs> you know, everyone's got an opinion and it, and unfortunately not everyone's opinion is listened to or weighted correctly. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, let's take a step back and let's just use data. You can't argue with data. If you, if you agree with, objective data that will hopefully be different than Angela, you know, being on another show talking about, you need to invest more. Um, well, of course you're going to expect me to say that this, this was, let's use the power of my research company to right. really move the needle. I want to get into the specifics of it, but I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was thinking to myself how, if I remember correctly from some of my classes and discussions post-college, what a slow move it was for the advertising industry and society in general to recognize the purchasing power of women, right? Because it was so set in their brains that men had the purse strings and men were the ones making decisions. It took a really long time for them to acknowledge and adjust to the idea that women buy more cars and electronics and insurance and clothes and household, like all the things, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's similar to, I sometimes actually get frustrated and I pointed it out in meetings at ESPN that I understand that ESPN is predominantly or has more male viewers and readers than women, but sometimes they'll do studies and they'll say, this is the top sports show in every meaningful market, men, 18 to 45. I'm like, that's one market. That's not every, like, yeah. you could at least acknowledge and try to study what's happening in yeah. women's markets as well, because similar to the sports world in general, it's an untapped market. And the way we seem to view it is not the way we seem to view untapped markets in other industries. And that's, I think, what's held it back so much is um, this really antiquated thinking and and stupid thinking where people are just letting dollars pass them by. And that's what's so fascinating about using the data is hopefully that's a way to get through to people where they don't have to have an opinion like you do about the worth of the product. They just have to be greedy. And we know people are very capable of that. Totally. So if you show them the data. So, so let's talk about the approach that you took. This is a big meaty topic. How do you decide where you want to try to get your research from and how you want to approach better understanding the people who are already into women's sports and the ones who maybe haven't been reached yet. Yeah. So um, we were out to unlock the business potential of women's sports. A lot of what we've studied at sports innovation lab is around this concept called the fluid fan, which is the future consumer for sports, like full stop. It's not your diehard fan. that's going to buy this easy ticket and bleed 
you know, your, your team colors and buy, even if the beer's bad and the hot dog, hot dogs overpriced, this is like your future digitally savvy consumer that, that is going to spend money in a variety of ways. So we're like, okay, if we've been studying that and supporting industry on that, how do we show what fans of women's sports care about, what their behaviors are really, this is a behavior based report. Um, and you know, quickly what you recognize is, well, there isn't a lot of data to look at. People haven't actually collected data, which is crazy. <laughs> um, so we're going to have to do this. For my top. previous point. Yeah, no, but you're exactly <laughs> right. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of generalizations and we didn't want this report to be about, you know, it's the right thing to do or, you know, there's a market just like, no, this is about like, there's a market. We already know that. Yes, it's the right thing to do. We already know that. What do we do? How do we go hard? How do we really understand and unlock revenue? So this is like this report to your point earlier, Sarah, is about money. There's a shit ton of money in women's sports. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you just don't see it because you're not looking for it. You haven't studied it. So, okay, let's let's just start there. We're going to go collect the data on our own. And so what we did is we said, look, if there's a boatload of money to be made, um, you got to understand the fan. Let's... I'm a team sport athlete. We went out, we had 27 partners, included all the biggest, some of the biggest properties, the WNBA, UFC, WWE, et cetera, that went out, the National Soccer League, Women's Sports Foundation, others that said, help us talk to your fan base and ask them to literally give us their social media archive, which is crazy, but it's all GDPR technology compliant. You know, we're not selling you ads. We're literally saying, Give us, download your Twitter, your Facebook history. Let us look at that in an anonymized way, totally anonymized in an aggregate and like pull out some trends from what we see. And we had almost half were men just for, for the record. So this again, oh yeah, fans of women's sports are women. No, it's actually also men. You just haven't seen that. So you've got this broad base of people literally canning us their data for free or for a free t-shirt because they want more women's sports. And we said, that's great. So we've got 10 million data points from these fans. We got 10 billion data points from um, viewership. We, we worked with a host of other partners like CrowdTangle and Zoom and others. And we put all this data together and our amazing, you know, data scientists, Katie Donovan, uh, Molly Tissenbaum, my co-founder, Josh Walker, the team, um, looked at what that data said and it said they are the future consumer. They're the, the early adopters, the highest concentration of these digitally savvy fluid fans, as we call them, is in women's sports. And that's like a big finding because it's what, what it's saying is that your, you know, total percentage, 10% of your fan base typically generates 50% of your total revenue. You got to know what those 10% are, what they're doing, these early adopters. And they live in women's sports today. You got to look at them today. So even if you don't even care about women's sports, you should know what women's sports fans look like and how they're behaving because that's where your future consumer is headed anyway. So I'll just start there. It's like, you can't ignore us because we are the future. How did you? (laughs) Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's been made clear already in the current moment that female sports fans are early adapters to the things that will eventually, I mean, I know this happens in the sports themselves. The NBA uses the WNBA almost as an incubator for ideas. We want to think about maybe doing this with the all-star game. We'll do, we'll do it in WNBA first, but you found that across multiple sports that the things that were introduced or being used already in women's sports would trickle over to the men's that were later to adapt. Well, just, if you think about men's sports, like the sports ecosystem, and we've, again, we help the whole ecosystem with sports innovation lab in general. So we've been doing this. You make money through sponsorship, through your linear rights, through your ticket sales, through your, some merch. I mean, there's a very traditional basic model that hasn't changed a lot. Now with technology, there's a ton of new ways. Think NFTs or it's VRA or this week, or, you know, like what's the shiny new object it's sports betting. And in some ways, yes, there's massive opportunity. Um, Men's sports t- definitely like think the NBA are already leaning into these new ways to engage with fans or create better experiences that are going to drive more revenue. So the smart leagues recognize, yeah, in the short term, we're making our bread and butter off these traditional streams that we should invest 
for tomorrow for these fans that maybe are cord cutters that never going to watch on on TV, but they'll watch online or they'll watch on their, their, you know, their smartphone. Um, so they're already exhibiting these behaviors. These fluid fans are already in men's sports, but women's sports, because you can't be a lazy women's right. sport. Fan. You can't, you like, it's not coming to you. You got to go find men, it. Yeah. Like you're, if you're a men's sports fan, it gets shoved in your face, whether you like it or not. Like if I live, you know, I'm a Pat's, I live here in new England and like, I know what's going on with the Pats, whether I care or not. It's what people are talking about is in my face every single day. Women's sports, you have to be, you have to go find it. It's just, you know, 4%, as you know, probably better than anyone of, of viewership, um, you know, percentage of time that is allocated to women's sports is like tiny. It's like really hard. So because it's hard to be a women's sports fan, they are the actually the most digitally savvy, um, kind of futuristic fan. You've you've winnowed the crowd in some ways because now you have to go find your audience on Twitch or your Reddit community, or you got to like download all these different platforms and all these different ways to like find your content or your athletes that you care about. And so just like their behaviors are very different and it's really cool to see. That's what we, you know, measured in this report and we're like, whoa, they, they, they're co-watching They're They, they want to learn more about the athlete. They want more context. Like there's certain elements of what these fans are doing. This is like in the future where all fans will be doing. It mirrors a lot of what I saw in the project mirrors studies that we did when we first launched ESPNW back in 2010. There was a really in-depth long form study about fan behavior and how women fan differently. Um, not all women, there are women who adapt the similar styles and viewing practices of predominantly male fans and, and of male sports. But to your point, there was a lot devoted to the idea of caring about the stories of the athletes, um, which is something we talk about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. After I became a, a co-owner of the NWSL team, the Red Stars, I really in the meetings kept saying like, people need to know the stars, the stakes, the stats, and the stories. Totally. If they're new to the team or new to any sport, the reason we get interested in Olympic curling or do totally. or whatever is because they give us a nice pretty feature story and tell us what the stakes are for that person what their story is why we should care what stat they're about to break with some record and we need to do that more with women's sports because it's such a part of men's coverage every day and women's coverage ends up being here's a highlight or this team won something we don't debate whether a coach should be fired or who's should be you know coming off the bench and, and, mm -hmm. and be a starter instead and having those debates and conversations is what drives interest so you, you find out all this stuff about the way um, these fans of these sports, and you weren't limiting it to women fans of women's sports, right? It was all fans of every gender, non-binary, et cetera, watching women's sports, right? Yeah, it, this wasn't women. This was a fans of women's sports. So right. it's, it's everyone that, that cares or just gave us their file because they wanted a free t-shirt. We're like, great. <laughs> we want more, you know, we want breath. This wasn't, um, yeah, so... But your point about storytelling is spot on. And you, you use curling as an example. Why do people watch so much of Michael Phelps when they've seen him like for two seconds? Is they know the backstory, right. they know the context or the curling, you know the teams and the and the NBC and the Olympic coverage gets that. And that's the biggest freaking brand, sports brand in the world. Billion dollar. I mean, I was in the IOC for eight years. I get it. Why do people care about the Olympics when it's only every four years or every two years? It's the context and the storytelling and the athlete and the drama and yeah, a little bit of the sport that you barely can follow. And <laughs> for some reason, we don't, it's like we forget that playbook and this report, what you just laid out and you're an expert, it's like, that's exactly what we're saying. We're like, look, if you're going to monetize women's sports, you got to build this community-based monetization model, which is about changing the way you produce. It's not just about the game and the highlights and the stats. Yeah. If you had context coming from left and right, but you don't, so you need to build that. You invest a boat ton of money in better production, shoulder content, storytelling. The athlete is the distributor and the entertainer. And like, you're going to spend so much more money differently on, you know, giving people a reason to care. Right. Well, and that's the interesting part too. So 
one of the things that drives the Olympics is patriotism, occasionally jingoism, right? The idea that we care especially about this because this person is wearing our country and it brings us pride. One of the interesting things about trying to take that model over to women's sports is that there is not that inherent investment. And a lot of that comes from a lack of nostalgia because of how young the leagues are. If I grew up in Chicago and everybody I know is a Chicago Bears fan and your grandparents and their grandparents and everybody were always going, you hear these stories and you hear the history and the traditions and it's been built up over a hundred years. So few women's sports have that length yep. so that when somebody invests in it to your point and to the point of the project proving this out, a lot of times they care more about an athlete than they do even a team or region. Some totally. of my favorite WNBA players do not play for my team, the Chicago Sky. And I find myself torn in terms of which teams I want to root for because it's like, well, I want Sue is on that team. And I love Sue, but I also love yeah. Elena and I love Lasia. And, you know, the Sky is good too, but like none of my favorite players are on the Sky. And a lot of that stems from there is not that built in, this is my team. I'm going to call them we which is what I do with the Bears and the Bulls and the Cubs and the teams that were basically, like you said, forced into my face that I heard about every day for my entire life. Mm -hmm. And that requires a different approach too, because like your project said, sometimes people are more invested in the athlete and wherever they go, which is the highest levels of men's sports, someone like LeBron, more so than they are in the team itself. Yeah. And that's, again, at Sports Innovation Lab, we've been talking about this athlete-driven media, that athlete is the distribution channel now. If you get your your athlete, you know, LeBron gets traded and suddenly, you know, the Lakers are selling out LeBron jerseys. They don't really care about the Lakers. They care about LeBron. Mm -hmm. What his jersey, right? So there's, in women's sports, again, you got to invest in the context. The benefit men's sports have today is there's so much content around the context and building up these athletes. But in this point in time, why I think women's sports can kind of reshape the mold is society wants more. Athletes get that they're influencers and they have this massive power. And technology is really democratizing access. It's giving at these female athletes like mm -hmm. the ability to build their brands and connect to consumers directly. They don't have to go through traditional media. And so you get these these breakout female athletes and male athletes too, but increasingly women that like these fans love. And we saw that in our data that they, you know, they wanted more of just the athlete. And so if you build your model in a different way, which is look, if you're a men's sports league, you can't really change your model holistically. You can kind of build around the edges. If you're a women's sports league, you can blow it up. You're all, you're like the startup. You don't have, you can do things very different mm -hmm. and, and say, we're going to put all of our content around, the athlete as an example, or we're going to build 90% shoulder content and like 10% about the game. And like, again, thinking outside of the box is what we, you know, and being prescriptive in what we think you should do through this community-based monetization model is what, you know, the fan project was all about. Like, let us look at the fans and, and, and build a new way based on where fans are headed and what they want. And, and it's, and, and that's exciting to me because again, I think you can leapfrog in a lot of ways, the historical bias that's existed in the system, because everyone's trying to figure out technology, everyone's wrapping their head around these societal trends, and everyone's going, oh my God, the athlete is like increasingly having the power over the teams and the leagues. And how do we, how do we work together with that? And I think women's sports can lean into those three kind of macro trends that we've identified and say, let's build something better. That's so true. And it is so much about technology. And if everyone's learning this new thing at the same time, it levels the playing field a bit more. Mm -hmm. And then also to your point about the historical bias or just the ways in which things have always been done. One of the things that frustrates me about women's sports coverage is it ends up always infantilizing women to be either your little girl all grown up or a role model for your little girl. They're not fierce. They're not badass. They're not funny. They're not edgy. At least that's not the portrayal we get of them. And so social media opened up the doors for us to say, no, we want oh. real Megan Rapino. We want Serena Williams, not just on the tennis court. We want Paige Beckers, who has like 900,000 followers already after one year of college hoops. We want to see who they really are. And because there isn't some 
gatekeeper of media deciding what we care about and giving us what they think we want, we're getting the actual person. And that's allowing people to fall in love with them in ways yep. that we really haven't been allowed to with women in sports very often in the past. And when you have 2 million people following Megan Rapino, you can't really deny the appeal, right? You can't say people aren't interested. Um, you can, um, I, had a, I had a producer in, in radio uh, who's no longer my producer, who said people weren't interested in the Serena Williams story of almost dying in childbirth because, you know, tennis isn't that big. And I was like, it doesn't even matter if they know the sport of tennis exists. This is the greatest yeah. of all time. Having to literally tell the hospital, I think I know what's wrong with me. Will you do something? And saving yeah. her own life after having a baby. So um, I think those old ideas are getting pushed out by the hard and fast data, which is why it's great that what you worked with is these numbers that can direct people to change. And I wonder in working with the companies you've already been working with or in doing this rollout for fan project, have you had people be interested and ready to adapt and, and listen to what your recommendations are based on the data? Yeah, some, and again, we're, we're looking and working with the brands that get it. And when you can say, look, there's been a 12 times growth in fans of women's sports engaging with athlete driven media. It's not just me saying, Oh, you should build more media on the athlete. It's like right. fans are freaking avid or you had a 2700% year over year increase in fans exhibiting um, behaviors with visa as a brand that's sponsoring after they announced their sponsorship of the U S you know, men's and women's team, equal sponsorship, like, massive engagement, like depth of engagement, same thing with Budweiser and Nike over a thousand percent each. Like, so brands, I'm not just saying, Oh, it's the right thing. I'm like your engagement and your following and your, your brand affinity that you're creating versus the general sports fan is like crazy off the charts with data. You should invest in women's sports. It's not, Oh, my corporate social responsibility brands, we should be putting more or, Oh, I feel guilty. It's like, no, you're going to freaking make more money. Just better ROI. Maybe you don't have the reach that you have today, but you have the depth and that might convert. Again, you're going to sell more product that way. So what, what we set out to do is say, look, um, there's data out there. If we can un unlock it um, and show that, you know, there's 185% year over year increase in shopping behavior around the WNBA merch, right? You know, everyone knows the orange hoodie, right? Like, Sell more merchandise, everyone. Fans of women's sports are- And have it be ready because it's not cool Love when it, it sells yeah. out. It's actually not yeah. good when it sells out. That means you once again underestimated demand and, and left money on the table. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like there's, there's, it, there's, there's number out, there's data out there that again, we either collected ourselves or worked with our partners to say, whether you're a brand, you're a media partner, you're a league or a team yourself trying to figure it out. You're an owner and you're an owner of Chicago, which is amazing. Like- I'd be putting more money in. I'd say, look, expect to be in the red. Look, any smart business is in the red for many, many years. Look mm -hmm. at the MLS. And then suddenly you come out and you're mm -hmm. freaking skyrocketing up. So why do we have a double standard on the women's side? And we're like, oh, they've lost money for three, four years. We're going to pull the plug. Like what? Right. Well, the, the XFL makes me want to pull my hair out. The XFL blew through what, like $280 million or something and didn't finish one season. And people were leaping to get back in and try it for a third, fourth time, however totally. long. And women lose a tiny amount of money year over year. And people are like, oh, this, it doesn't work. Exactly. It's apples and oranges. You're like, wait a sec. Like, but, but, but that investment mentality, I right. think is what I want to see on the women's side. Like, Oh, we lost this one. We're going to win this one. It's got to be, like, like you said, a startup mentality totally. where you say in the beginning, you overinvest, not expecting profit because that's the only way to get the awareness and the, and the market coverage that's necessary to change people's behaviors and habits. Um, but people are so reticent to do so because of those long held beliefs about it not being a viable product, despite all research saying otherwise now. Um, we did a really interesting study that totally coincides to what you were talking about with the brands. I didn't do it, but um, the, uh, the Red Stars have had access to the study results. And they spoke to that fact that if you are in a sport like the NFL or MLB, your brand awareness is much bigger than when you sponsor something like the WNBA or the NWSL. But your brand involvement is significantly lower. People will see it. And then they will not care really that you decided yep. to sponsor the NFL. They won't yep. take an interest in your brand. They won't proactively use it any more than they already were. They'll just see it 
And maybe next time they're at the store, they'll buy it because they recognize the name. That's how sponsorships and advertising work. But on the women's side, the difference in engagement with the brand before and then after they decide to support this thing that you love so much and that you know needs their support, the massive difference in the payoff for the sponsors in choosing to align with these brands. It matters so much more to women's sports mm-hmm. fans. Yeah, the Zoom said the uh, some of their data said um, NWSL fans were two two and a half times more loyal to Nike following their sponsorship, and the WNBA fans were three and almost three and a half times more loyal. They're they're so they're again back to fluid fans follow values, and us as consumers are now using our wallets according to who we are. And you, you can think of how many companies you're like, nah. They don't align to who I am. They're mm-hmm. homophobic. They're racist. Whatever the case may be, Chick Fil A. You're, you're just not buying it. Or you're like, oh, you're sustainable. You're, you know, have a a, a great, you know, gender equitable policy. I'm going to spend more. I'm going to spend more than I should. But it's because you, I'm going to spend yep. on the products I care about. Sports is no different. Every team and league has to recognize they're a brand. Athletes know this as well. Fans, consumers are going to spend money according to that alliance to like those brand values in themselves. So I think the the sooner we can understand it's, it's yes, maybe you need to spend more to diversify. And I, we hear this all the time at sports Nation. Uh Oh, I got to invest in women's sports. Cause we've only, we're investing billions on the men's side and nothing on the women's side. Give me, give me a property, figure it out. And like, okay, that's a start. But like, why? Because your consumer is pissed off at you going, you can't, Overinvest and be visible on the men's side and not the women's side. It's the consumer pressure they're getting. So again, there's definitely not only better brand affinity that you're pointing out and that we saw in our data, but also increasingly we as consumers across the board are investing and, and spending money or not spending money. And especially this younger generation on products and services within sports and outside of sports, uh, again, that align to who we are as, as, as people. What was the most surprising part of the study for you? Um, I think just that there's a, you know, behaviors that are, that these fans are already doing that we could see and that money has been lost. There's like, there's been this like missed opportunity um, to, to, to drive revenue today. And again, I think it goes back to what you said earlier, Sarah, like no one's looked at it. No one's studied it. If we actually understood these consumers better, we would be making, we would have been making money five, 10 years ago. Um, And so for me, the biggest surprise was just that, you know, had, you know, magic wand, but if we could have predicted this or seen this, if we had studies 10 years ago, five years ago on this, we would have been doing a lot of our recommendations already. And, and, um, we wouldn't have been forced as a business, you know, the business community um, to change because Megan Rapino stands up and says it, you know, why is it always the athletes that have to stay up and push the envelope, push us to do more um, and get their followers to do so? Like, again, I'm so it's more of a generalization, but that that like there's a market here. There's a big market here. Like across the board it wasn't like oh one thing we saw that sponsors like this or media said that it's like across the board we just saw it in our report and um and i just my biggest it's like why haven't any why hasn't anyone done this before i guess right it's it's right it feels like so many of the same conversations over and over again and the hope is that some of the recent numbers, whether it's the you know 400 plus percent increase in viewership for the NWSL with a TV deal, to the way we're seeing the WNBA, you know, have an incredible impact on off the court, that it'll start to move the needle a little more, and, and all the people who are scared, or they'll just age out, and people who are more aware of all of this information yeah. and the and the and the potential there start taking over those really big decision making positions and make a difference. Um, I could talk to you forever, but we got to wrap. So you got to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Ten speed round questions that everybody gets. Number one, your current careers are canceled. What job do you do instead? Uh... My careers, you said. Okay, Anything not- that you do for work right now, which is many things, you can't do any of them. 
I'd be like a um, the captain of a boat. I just love oh, the water. Nice. I'd like just live on the boat and you know right. take people around the world. That'd Deadliest cool. catch with Angela. No, no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't be catching fish. I'd okay. be like on a yacht. Oh, that's so much better. I'd be on like Perfect. a great. <laughs> um, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? I was watching The Sopranos <laughs> at like two in the morning. The um, my hockey sticks got delivered at two in the morning, and I thought literally that the guy walking up to my house had a shotgun. And I, I like, I thought no! I, I can. <laughs> that was like perfect <laughs> timing. Fletch, get out of here. No, I literally thought I was going to die. I thought the guy walking up at two in the morning was. Uh, it, it's a longer story, but um, it was scary enough that Fletch just freaked out. You know. But so the Sopranos primed me. I don't know if you saw that series back in the day. I thought I was going to die. I did not see it. I tried to watch it and I happened to start in like the middle of an episode and it was so gory without me even having a, grown at any attachment at all to anyone that I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> well, I, I, I was living it. I was right going, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Ooh. I, maybe like an astronaut, like, Ooh. like I would love to be able to go to the moon and back. I mean, it's a day. Yeah, I might, it might, week, might take but... a little longer than that, but at well, least like, in that case, you'd get the experience without having to be up there longer than a day. I think for one day I could do it. I'm and then I'd be very claustrophobic. Yeah. If you give me more than a day so I can actually go to space and back, yeah. like, that would be friggin' cool. <laughs> um, number four, what current celebrity from sports, TV, politics, music, uh, would you most like to be your best friend? Current celebrity? Mm-hmm. Um, man, you're killing me here. <laughs> I, need to, I needed a pregame this. Uh, I would love to meet probably like Oprah. I know it's like she's – she's or Michelle Obama. Sorry. Michelle Obama is like – I met her once at the um, – I met her a couple of times at the White House with all this Olympic stuff. And yeah. She, and like the she Olympics. She seems so cool. She's just so cool. And maybe she's not like a big flashy celebrity, but like every time she talks, I'm like, I love you. Yeah. Of course, same way. You know, you're just like, you get some, you get you're some just, great wisdom. Wise. Yeah. Real wisdom. Yes. Not like bullshit. Applicable, like, useful. You know, here's a wisdom. book and, yeah. you know, make it your own. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great one. Um, celebrities are okay, but, you know, I feel like I know them already because they tell me everything on their you know, <laughs> right. so. uh, Number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Uh, I don't like wasting chapstick or like <laughs> the end of a, a you know, a, a toothpaste tube. I, I, you know, like just waste. Yeah. I don't think that's meaningless, but I agreed. My my friend did the sweetest thing for his wife. He literally took all of, she would keep all of her lotions and buy new ones, but like not throw out the old ones because there was still stuff in the bottom. And he cut them all and like put them all into a bag and saved all the ends of all the lotions for her. It was like very sweet act of kindness so that she wouldn't stress about the waste. It's funny. I've gotten through all these like lotion bottles from the pandemic, like during the pandemic, I've gotten through and I'm like, instead of I'm gonna, before I buy a new bottle of lotion or a new chapstick, I'm going to use up all the thousands I have. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> laying around. <laughs> kind of uh, stupid, but you asked the dumb question. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, I wanted it. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I maybe again, this is all relative. I was in the fifth grade and I, um, ran to be class school class vice president and i wrapped literally wrapped my speech and i look back and i'm like oh my god <laughs> what was i doing oh. i thought it was the coolest and oh. i look back and i'm like man i'm yeah i didn't win by the way i didn't win oh i'm so sorry to hear that but you learn you learn you do you learn you live in i don't know if that counts i mean i can use a it hockey counts. story but like, no i mean it counts it's like a childhood it's scar yeah, I mean, almost everybody's most embarrassing is from growing up because, like, you don't have the perspective yet to be like, it's cool. You're just mortified for life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, most like to improve. Slowing down, maybe. 
I just, I go too fast. I talk a lot. I'm, I'm like, let's go type A. Sometimes just stop and smell the roses. I think would be helpful. That is a really good one. I just literally injure myself sometimes. being in a hurry. I like run into yeah, stuff I think you and I would totally I can't slow get down. Along. <laughs> yeah. I think we would just like like let's go and we'd get a million things done in the day and like just stop. Like gonna... Yeah, I injure myself too. I, I I had better body awareness, I think, when I was playing hockey. Right. And so I do like within like precision, like moving through the world. And occasionally I'll like hit my elbow or my foot and I'm like, what the <laughs> Uh, my body awareness as I get older, but I'm still in a hurry, so it doesn't work. Number eight, any musician or band, alive or dead, can play at your next party. Who is it? Oh, this is easy. Dave Matthews Band. They will always be my favorite. I love those guys. Like, oh, so good. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Biggest failure. Um. So, I always say winning the silver medal is a, such a honor and you know i'm not belittling but we when we got won the silver medal in 02 we were perfect that year 33 and 0 and we choked in the final and it's still my mm. hardest this is the the salt lake city olympics when you're like the best and you implode on your own you know yeah like you didn't, brutal you didn't show up and like okay people go well you won the silver be proud i'm like yeah but like let me give you some context here yeah <laughs> uh, that was our fault um, that was really hard. I took two years off from school. We trained full time for two years and it still pains me when I, I can't even watch that. I haven't even watched that final game ever. <laughs> oh, I don't blame you in the slightest at all. <laughs> uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh God. Um, um, I don't know. Inspirational, um, uh, uh, hardworking and, um, in, in, I, I got one in, <laughs> in a minute word. Admittable. I want to be admittable. I'm learning that word. I'm trying to, that'd be cool if people said she's admittable. She's not easily copied, right? Um, your, original. your new favorite is inimitable. And mine, as of a couple years ago, when I heard Eddie Vedder use it, is unwithable. Oh, there you go. So it was Eddie. Cannot Eddie, be Eddie. with. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. It's a good one, Eddie. Like that one. He's he's also a good one for the the band. That... Oh, absolutely. Two of my all time faves. Um, yeah. final question: Who should I have on this podcast? It can be from any industry, any interest level. Just someone you think I would find interesting. Find interesting. Um, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to who, who's someone I've gotten to know recently or, or for a while, one of my friends, um, since you're in sports, she works at Google, Kate Johnson. Oh, I've met Kate. Yeah. She's like, she's like a rower, she's an Olympic athlete. So she's got a lot of the athlete qualities. I know you like to talk to athletes, but she's also on the business side now and has like just crushing it over there. Just landed the big, um, partnership with the WNBA and is someone I, I respect and um, would definitely interview. Billie Jean King too. You can't be. You yeah. Know, I have not had Billie Jean on. I need to do Billie's, that too. Billie's one of my favorites of all time. Um, to do that. I would have her on if, you know, just in terms of legends. Awesome. Well, so great to have you on. I love that this project is out there. I love the buzz it's getting and I really hope it influences people to start behaving differently around something that as you say, is the future and is a lot of, uh, well, it's, it's the past too. We should have been doing this a long time ago. Shit ton of money in women's sports. Let's go. <laughs> Print the shirts. I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to my friends <laughs> who make those kind of teas and we'll just go with the shit ton of money in women's sports. Let's, Let's go. So go. I, that's what I'm doing, Sarah. I'm going to move hard into this space myself personally, because I'm just so bullish on the market, the numbers and you know, well, if you have any interest in uh, owning part of a professional women's soccer team, we already got Kendall Coyne Schofield on our squad. You know, I, I know that. who you need to talk to. You let I me know. That. Let's go. All right. I'm flying out. Let's get some right, We're going to take this business off the air. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is the end of the show where I rant about something, rave about something, tell you something to read, listen to, watch. And today 
It is the ESPY's speech from Paige Beckers, the star point guard of the UConn women's basketball team. She was named the best college athlete in women's sports at the ESPY's, and she used her acceptance speech to touch on a topic that's been really on the forefront of the WNBA, the professional league that she's not even yet in, the celebration and honoring of black women. And she mentioned something that has been brought up a bunch of times that 80% of the postseason awards in the WNBA last year were won by black players, but they got half the amount of media coverage of the white athletes. Here's a little bit of what she said. With the light that I have now as a white woman who leads a black-led sport and celebrated here, I want to shed a light on black women. They don't get the media coverage that they deserve. They've given so much to the sport, the community, and society as a whole, and their value is undeniable. She said later, I think it's time for change. Sports media holds the keys to storylines. Sports media and sponsors tell us who is valuable, and you have told the world that I mattered today. And everyone who voted, thank you. But I think we should use this power together to also celebrate black women. She's so young and already hitting the right notes, using her time in the spotlight to shine it on others. And honestly, people like her are why I think the next generation can save us and and do a lot um, with the mindset that they have, their articulation of these things so young. So shout out to Paige Beckers and uh, go check out the speech. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please, and give a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>